kind of get the feel that um, our brother Joe has never met somebody that isn't a friend almost immediately. Just one of those warm individuals. I'm so grateful and looking forward to him being back uh, when we do Sunday evening in October to be able to share more about what God is doing in the, in the Tofigi's lives. Um, Jesus Christ could never be accused of saying something just to attract a crowd, just to please people and sort of tickle their ears, to use the biblical language. In fact, on several occasions when crowds were gathered around, he says things that are specifically designed to, to deter those who are just sort of hangers-on, to scatter them. Luke gives an example of that in Luke 14, 25. It says, great crowds accompanied Jesus. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He then said to that crowd, he warned them to count the cost. If your ambition is following me and being one of my disciples, you should consider the cost first in that discipleship, because he then went on to say, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are profound warnings. I don't know about you, but I think we have a tendency sometimes to be tempted to water them down just a little. Does he really mean renounce everything? Does he really demand that kind of devotion? Indeed he does. Jesus Christ very appropriately, demands our devotion. He calls us as followers of Jesus Christ to count the cost because he is worthy of worship. This morning we're going to see a woman as we return to John, the Gospel of John chapter 12. We are going to see a woman who, who was understanding his worth, who was beginning to see Jesus in his majesty and his glory. And from her example, we learn what it looks like to worship Jesus Christ as the all-surpassing treasure in her life, to the point that even her own earthly treasures she uses to declare his greatness. This passage also goes on, and we'll look quickly at the end to just a contrast in this passage between the woman and then some people who valued their own lives, treasured their own existence more than anything else around them. She, on the one hand, is nothing could be more treasured than Jesus. They, on the other hand, nothing could be more treasured than themselves. John chapter 12. So this morning we're returning to the Gospel of John. We have not been in this survey for a while. Um, so just to kind of refresh your memory, we titled this series, uh, Signs of Life, that you may believe that Jesus is the Savior, basing that on John 20, where John gives the purpose statement to the Gospel of John and says that he has recorded these signs from the life of Jesus and is now passing them on by way of his, his Gospel. And in order that people might see through these signs, through these miracles, as we would call them, that Jesus is the Christ, that he does things that only God can do, and that by seeing him as the Christ, that that we might believe that he is indeed the Son of God. And so that purpose statement is given by the Gospel of John. It is very much evangelistic. See who Jesus is and believe in Jesus. Before we broke from the Gospel of John, we were finishing chapter 11, where Jesus performs the greatest miracle of his earthly ministry up to this point. It is the one that becomes the turning point. It is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is died, 
He is in the tomb. The tomb has been sealed. He has been in there for several days. He is fully dead, and Jesus raised him from that. And that miracle becomes the turning point because now you see this this sort of outpouring in his direction toward Jesus. There is more and more people who are believing in him, and that creates panic among the Jewish religious leaders. They see any ascendancy in the fame of Jesus as consequently meaning their own decline, that if Jesus were to gain, they would be the ones who would lose. The Jewish religious leaders see this not only on a religious basis, but but on a purely political expediency perspective. They have managed to hold this sort of uneasy alliance with the Roman government that has allowed them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, to to be able to be in a position where they have some authority, some power, some prestige. They are able to have as much rule as Jews could have over their own homeland. And, And their thought now is, if Jesus begins to gain in fame... And Rome gets upset with that, and they see Jesus as a sort of challenge to the the Caesar, then they are going to come in and crush us. They will send the army in, and they will destroy us, and we will lose everything. And so that's why at the end of chapter 11, you have the, the high priest saying, we need to sacrifice this man for the sake of the nation. He's not speaking of any theological truth at that point. He's purely talking politics because he sees Jesus as a threat to everything he and the other religious leaders have, and he wants to see Jesus stopped. John eleven forty eight. 48, we saw the last time we were here was the, the Jewish leaders voicing their worst fear. It says, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The irony in that is just Unreal. Here are the Jewish religious leaders, the ones who should be pointing their people to the coming of the Messiah, the one who should come for his people and his nation. And they are the ones saying, if we don't stop this guy, everyone will believe in him and we will lose everything as a consequence. And so Jesus performs the miracle of raising Lazarus in probably the late fall, early winter. At that point, as this this turn against him becomes complete in terms of the religious leaders' minds. Jesus moves out of the area of, around Jerusalem and, and Judah, which was that, that area, Judea, that area, and moves to Ephraim. And, and there's more that goes on in his ministry that Matthew and Mark and Luke record, but for the most part it is the closing months of ministry. And he is not coming back into Jerusalem until it is time to lay down his life. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Six days... Before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. John 12 launches us into the most important week in history. This is the week that will culminate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when he says that it is six days before the Sabbath, he is talking about presumably a Saturday night. The um, Jewish people had just celebrated the Passover, the, the Sabbath, I should say, that began on Friday at sundown, ended at Saturday at sundown. And so that Saturday night is now six days before the start of the Passover when Jesus Christ will give his own life as the lamb for his people. And so this is Saturday night. The Sabbath has ended. 
People are able to move to another's home and gather for dinner, and they are doing that. They are gathering in this town of Bethany. Not only is Jesus there, but we have these friends of his that that we have seen throughout his ministry, Lazarus, whom he has raised from the dead, and Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sister. We also will see as we read on that people are beginning to gather as well who are just sort of curious onlookers. Not only is Jesus back in the region, which is fascinating, But Lazarus has become sort of one that they want to see because Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And so he is um, kind of an interesting person for people to see. And it says that they are reclining there in verse 2 with him at table. When we think of Jesus at a meal, we might tend to think towards sort of the Da Vinci Last Supper painting of Jesus sort of seated at the table in the middle with the disciples scattered out around him. And so you see Da Vinci's rendering there. In reality, what it describes in John is reclining at table. It was probably more likely a, a low table that used sort of pillows and um, just just comfort that they could lie on and recline on with their feet extended away from the table, perhaps propped up on an elbow as they ate. If you see modern depictions of this kind of arrangement when they'll like rehearse the Passover and have people sitting, and it's done in America, people are typically sitting cross-legged at the table because it's still so weird for us to imagine reclining at a table and eating while you're resting on one shoulder. That would have been the norm in that culture. And so it explains what we have here when his feet are extended back behind him based on what we see now beginning in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So the therefore in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound, is pointing us back. And it's pointing us back to what he just said. They were reclining at table, and so therefore it is entirely appropriate now for Mary to be able to come around to where Jesus is and to begin to carry this out concerning his feet, this anointing of his feet. This is the second time the Gospels tell us of a woman who either washed or anointed the feet of Jesus. The other account happens in Galilee. It's recorded in Luke 7. The woman there is simply described as a sinner. It is at a Pharisee's home. And the the Jewish leaders, again, are appalled at what she is doing as she is wiping Jesus' feet with her tears and with perfume. And Jesus uses that then as a teachable moment. And he then forgives her sins and says to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Here in John 12, it is Mary. This is a different setting. Uh, Mary knew Jesus well. Not only had they had the, the, the personal acquaintance that had extended back a ways from Jesus coming to Bethany and, and being hosted in their home, uh, we know that she had obviously witnessed the raising of her brother and had had, had that experience, but Luke 10, 39 says on one of those occasions previously, Mary was at the feet of Jesus as he was teaching in her home. While Martha was serving, you remember the story, Mary was there and she was, Mary chose the good part, as Jesus said, as she was sitting there at his feet listening to him teach. So Mary is is not coming to Jesus here in John 12 for forgiveness. She has long before believed in him, 
That faith has grown as she has now seen him as Lord of life, as the one that when he first came and Lazarus was in the grave, she says, I, I know you could have prevented this because I, I understand your power to have healed him. And then sees him raise Lazarus from the dead, now knows that this is the Lord. And so she is believing in him. This is an act of worship. This is, this is Mary wanting to clearly declare the greatness of Jesus, to praise him, to show this act of adoration for Jesus. Mary had come with what was probably her greatest and costliest earthly possession, this treasure of this perfume, in order to use it to declare the all-encompassing treasure that Jesus had become to her, to now declare the greatness of, of the Lord of the one who had raised her brother. And so this is, this is an act of remarkable worship, and in doing so, she leaves this timeless example for us of what it means to worship the Savior to the degree of, of sacrificing even one's greatest earthly possessions. Matthew, in his account of this story, says in Matthew 26 that Jesus called Mary's act a beautiful thing and said, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That is a remarkable promise. Jesus is assuring that this account is, is kept and that as the gospel is proclaimed, this worship of the Savior is also proclaimed. This is, this is God-pleasing worship, if you will. This is Jesus saying, see what she has done and carry that on. Not just as a, a statement to memorialize Mary, but it is a lesson about loving Jesus because it models such pure and sincere and humble adoration. So what I want to do is just kind of walk us through just some of the qualities of, of Mary's worship. And think about those and apply those to our own lives and to our own worship. So first of all, Mary's worship, you have these on the notes inside your bulletin. Mary's worship was deliberate. From Matthew's account, we know that this was, this was not at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. This was at the home of someone called Simon the leper. So presumably somebody that Jesus had healed at some point of leprosy. All that to say, Mary did not just get up from the table and say, you know, I'm going to go get that vial of perfume from out of my room and bring it out here. But rather, when they went to Simon's home, Mary had evidently, deliberately planned for this. Mary had taken this expensive vial of perfume and she brought it with her to Simon's home for that meal, presumably with the mindset of this was something she was going to do. In worship, Jesus seems to confirm that down in verse 7 when it says, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. It's a kind of a confusing statement to us just because in verse 3 she had already poured it out. And from Matthew and Mark we know she broke the vial open, she poured it out, she wiped the excess. And so there was nothing to, to keep or save per se in terms of the ointment. Keep and, or save in verse 7 is not, a, is not a present tense. So he's not saying she is keeping this on an ongoing basis. It's an aorist tense. It speaks about a moment in time. And, and what Jesus is, is saying here is a response to what Judas has just said. Judas has just complained. Judas has offered this statement of, of just 
total disgust at what, at what Mary is doing, that she should have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor, and, and Judas comes off at the moment trying to, to look like sort of a praiseworthy being, which is why John is so kind at this point to say, and by the way, this was a lie. Judas was not going to, to see any kind of charitable act here. He wasn't calling for charity. He was hoping that she'd sell it, give the money, it'd go in our bag, and then I'd get my cut of it because they, they realized afterwards, apparently, that Judas was routinely stealing from the money bag, and it's very gracious of John to, to help us to, to see that and by adding that comment in there. Jesus' statement in verse 7 is a response, though, to what, what Judas says. Jesus essentially takes Judas at face value, this complaint about this waste of, of extravagant um, sort of giving here, and he responds by saying, Mary had kept this perfume. This, this perfume was, was purposeful. She, she brought this deliberately. This is something she did specifically for a reason that it is an act of worship. Now, Mary may not have fully grasped all of the, the symbolism at this point and exactly what, what Jesus goes on to say in terms of preparing for my burial, but clearly it is a deliberate act on her part, something that maybe she had kept for a long time for, for something special, but now brings it for this, for this anointing of Jesus. Whether or not she, she knew that she was, if you will, sort of a embalming Jesus ceremonially beforehand. We don't know. There's no clear indication. But, but certainly what she did know was the very real threats against Jesus. She understood, just like any of the people in that room did, that the only reason Jesus was back in this, room, in this area was because he had been away avoiding the, 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 the threat of the Jewish leaders. They, they knew his life was in jeopardy. And that as soon as he came back into this area, that eventually word would get to a couple miles away and, and, and to the leaders in Jerusalem, and they would come for Jesus or pursue him. She also no doubt had heard, either from Jesus' own lips or from the lips of others who reported what he said, that he had already said, I am coming back to Jerusalem and I will be crucified. The Son of Man will be, will be crucified there in Jerusalem. And so... What we, what we can be certain of, at least in Mary's mind, is that she knew that at any moment Jesus Christ could be gone from them. That this, this enjoyment of this friendship, this being in the presence of the Lord of life, that this was coming to an end. And she wanted to give a very deliberate sacrifice of praise, to worship him, to honor him. And so she takes what is probably her greatest earthly possession, something that she had been saving, and she deliberately brings it with her to use it in worship at that moment. Mary's worship was deliberate. What can we learn from that? Some of us are, are better planners and organizers than others. Some of us are really good at making sure everything's on the calendar and, and we've got it all and we're tight, you know, on planning things and keeping our schedule. And, and we live in Northern Virginia so that even when we do plan really well, we're probably still late because we ran into traffic. But we try. We plan. We organize. Some of us, not so much. We, we struggle in those areas. I, I understand that. But we're deliberate. You did it this morning. You, you got here because you you planned it out. You got up at a certain time, and you got ready, and you drove here to be here because this was on your schedule for today. Without being deliberate, most of us would get nothing done. How deliberate are you in thinking about worship 
and planning to worship Jesus. How much do you, do you think about incorporating worship in your day, planning to, to give praise to him in what you do and how you live? How, do you, how deliberate are you in planning worship on days other than Sunday and the rest of the week? We often say, I know I need to pray more. I know I need to read more. I know I need to fill in the blank more. And, and we know none of that happens if we are not intentional about it. It doesn't just happen. It happens because we, we think about it. We're intentional to do it. If it's really our intent to make worship a more active part of our life, then we should be deliberate about treasuring Christ, feeding on who the person of Christ is, meditating on his character, looking at the gospel, thinking about what he has done, deliberately thinking of how do I, how do I bring more worship to bear in the course of my life? How am I living in a worshipful way and declaring his greatness? So her worship is deliberate. It's also extremely humble. This washing of feet, we, we tend to, in our sort of modern minds, assume this was just sort of a servant's duty, but even under general Roman guidelines, it was not expected that household servants in most instances dealt with feet. That was one of the areas where they generally were able to take a pass. Some household servants did occasionally wash feet, but for the most part, it is considered one of the most humble of acts, which is exactly why Jesus teaches it on that night before his crucifixion to the disciples. That's why it's so remarkable that he's washing their feet. And so here is Mary, fellow dinner guest, beloved friend of Jesus. She's not some stranger in the room. She has known Jesus. She has been around him. And here she is kneeling over his dusty feet, rendering this humble service before the room full of people. And to make it all the more remarkable, it says that she wiped the excess with her hair. What we know about Jewish custom in that era is that the woman's hair was typically bound up and covered. Perhaps on her wedding day was the one time that it would be brought down, but it was reserved for her husband. And yet she uncovers her hair and she uses it to wipe his feet. Richard Phillips calls this an act of complete surrender. He writes, she knew she was completely safe in his holy presence. I think that's an interesting insight from Phillips because it reminds us that there, there was nothing as culture might try to read into this. There's nothing erotic going on here. This is an act of adoration and worship, and she understood that in worshiping the Savior, this was completely holy, and she was just, as a servant, showing her love for him and committed to showing her devotion to him. Humility is part of the essence of worship, right? When we when we think about the greatness of God, when we think about the God who spoke creation into existence who has the power to, to pull the plug on it should he choose to at any moment and yet has chosen to send his son to redeem us and to call us into relationship with him, one of the things that should at least spark his great humility that we who are sinners are able to bow before the creator of the universe and call him Abba, Father, and see him as, as one that has saved us and redeemed us. That should make us treasure him. You ever get self-conscious about sacrificing for Jesus in ways that other people might think is foolish? 
You ever struggle in this area of humility? Or do you get concerned about what others think of how you treasure your Savior? Some of you have dealt with unbelieving family members or friends who see your engagement in local church, your service to the Lord, your giving of, of money or possessions or whatever it is to the service of the Lord, and they look and think, well, you're a fool. What, what are you doing? Why do you spend all that time there? Why do you, why do you give money? You can't even see him. What, what, what are you doing? You ever gauge the reaction of others to your worship and so sort of measure your worship by what others might be thinking? Mary's humility is, is lifted by a heart that is seemingly unconcerned about the approval of others. And so this is just a most humble act. She has no thought of whether or not people think she's foolish because her desire is to treasure the Savior. And so her worship is not only deliberate, it's humble. Third, it was God-centered. She does this before a room full of, of onlookers. Some turn out to be pretty skeptical and critical. John singles out Judas, but if we see Matthew and Mark, we see that they, he wasn't the only one that wasn't happy with this, that there were other skeptics in the room. Mark 14, verse 4 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The Greek word for indignant has the idea of agonizing or grieving. These guys are just, man, they are beside themselves. When that vial comes out and she breaks that open and she pours that over Jesus' feet, they are just appalled. Oh, that is just such a waste. Why would you do that? And they are upset with her, and so it says they scold her. By the way, when Jesus responds, we should just point out when, in, in verse 8, just so that we're clear on when he says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is not Jesus being arrogant at this point or dismissing care for the poor. This is Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, which is Deuteronomy 15, 11, which says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, God commands us, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus is, is quoting Deuteronomy 15, 11, the poor you will always have with you. And in fact, by quoting it, he is affirming what, what in fact that truth says. The poor will always be there. The expectation is that you will still serve the poor. You will still minister to them with dignity and care for them. But Understand at this moment in time, I will not always be with you. I am here for a limited window of time. And so what she is doing is entirely appropriate. As, as Mary sees this as one last opportunity to declare the worth of Jesus. It is God-centered worship. Her priority is not to impress people. She doesn't walk into the room and hold the vial up and say, you know how much this is worth, right? She just goes to his feet and she begins this act of worship. She is desiring to please one, even if it means the risk of embarrassment from others. Her focus is on taking what is perhaps her costliest possession to declare the greatness of Jesus. Our, our worship, our sacrifice for Jesus, also should be God-centered. Some of what passes as popular Christianity out in the culture and on TV sometimes imitates the, the man-centeredness of our culture. It is about us. God is here to bless us. God is here to do for us. God is here to take away problems for us. God is here to eliminate our hardship. We should feel good. Worship is, is to feel good about. 
The, the reality is, and that bleeds over then where it's tempting for churches then to, to try to cater to this sort of felt needs thing to attract attendees. The reality is worship that is centered on the person of God is not dependent on circumstances or feelings or even what I get for my worship or even how it feels. Worship that is God-centered is focused on who the person of God is so that even in my worst of circumstances, he still is unchanging. He is still worthy of my praise. He is still my Savior and still deserves my highest treasuring, my worship and sacrifice for him. The beauty of Mary's sacrifice is she sets her eyes fully on, on Jesus, not on the approval or, of others or the, the fear of disapproval or wondering even if she would get something for what she did, if there'd be some reward for this. Pleasing God and treasuring Jesus Christ may not make us applauded or popular with the culture. They may think that we are foolish. People may not cheer for you when you are sacrificing for Jesus Christ, when you are giving your life to, to serve him and, and giving of your possessions to treasure him. There may be times when others are indignant at your sacrifice. Treasuring Jesus above all else does not come with any promise of immediate tangible repayment for that, right? If your calculation about a particular area of service is, I don't really get anything out of that, so that's probably not for me. I don't get any benefit from that, that kind of ministry. And maybe you're missing the joy of sacrificial service that is aimed at just exalting the name of Jesus and treasuring him. Mary's worship was God-centered. Finally, it was complete and costly. This perfume appears to have been in a sealed vial. Mark 14 tells us that, that she broke open the, the neck of it. So she didn't, she didn't just pour out a few drips and, and, and try to save some for herself. She poured it out on Jesus' feet to the point that she's using her hair to, to wipe up the excess. This is an all-or-nothing sacrifice. Once the, once the vial is broken open, the value of it now has been spent if you will, and it's just a question of what you do with the contents, and she uses it entirely in anointing Jesus. All of that precious nard that she had kept for something, for some special moment, now is being used in worship. It's total, and it was costly. The spikenard plant grew in the Himalayas, in Nepal, in India, and so they, they brought out of it this oil from out of the plant, and they, they sealed it in these vials, and, and John, in fact, describes it as pure nard. This, this, was, this was the best of the best, and so some people would use these vials of this perfume as sort of investments, um, like, like we might... And, and so I'll date myself here. We might collect stamps or coins. I don't think... I don't know, does anybody collect stamps or coins? I don't know if they do anymore. I don't know what you collect nowadays as an investment. But, but that's kind of the similarity here. This is, this is something that's treasured, something that's put away and put on a shelf, and it's, it's there for, for some purpose down the road, some need perhaps down the road. It's costly. John says it was about a pound. The Roman pound was about 11 or 12 ounces. So this is a relatively large vial of a very unique and costly perfume. In fact, we can calculate when he says 300 denarii. A denarii was roughly a day's wages. So this is about a year's salary worth of perfume. 
That's the, that's the price tag, if you will, that's, that's on this vial. This is expensive. It was an investment that she could have taken to market and sold and gotten a good return on, and clearly she had been holding on to as one of her treasured earthly possessions. And she brings it to Simon's house and, and opens it and pours it on the feet of Jesus, and the fragrance fills the room. Mary takes this, this chief of earthly treasures in order to declare that Jesus Christ is her all-surpassing treasure. He is the one who is worthy of all her praise. He is the one who is worthy of her greatest sacrifice. He is the one whose feet she can come and anoint. Our worship should be complete and costly. We should be pouring ourselves out in the time we have on this earth, in the however few short years it is, our possessions, our talents, do you ever get stingy about calculating what to sacrifice for Jesus? How much he actually gets? What you really want to do with your time? Does it, does it make you easy when Jesus says to renounce the world and worship him? When considering sacrificial giving, do you have the thought of, well, this is how much I need to keep, so therefore I can maybe give this much? Mary's example is of just a great and full generosity. And even after she does it, we don't really have much left on Mary's life, but I think we can presumably say she didn't become destitute as a result of this. She, she knew that she was worshiping the Lord of life. I mean, he could bring back the dead. And, and so there's no need to go into this moment anxious that if this, is her, if this is her life savings stored up in this vial and she pours it out, that suddenly now she's going to panic as to what to do next. She pours it out trusting. There's no need to measure the prudence in this. God will provide. He raised my brother from the dead. I, I can rest in that. It's her sacrifice. Quickly, just verses 9 through 11, just as a contrast, because I think this is just remarkable to see in light of that. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing Jesus. The contrast between Mary and this sacrifice of this costly treasure to declare his worth now to these murmuring ones in the room who are saying this was foolish and now to the chief priests who are determined now to kill even Lazarus. The contrast is jarring. In the wake of such extravagant worship, here is the Lord of life who raises the dead. How can we give him any less? How is it possible that the, the religious leaders, as the crowds are growing, are saying, oh, now we've got to not only get rid of Jesus, but we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. Because Lazarus is just sort of a monument to the power of Jesus, and we've got to destroy his life too. Guy whose who's only crime is being raised from the dead. And now the Jewish leaders are after him. The crowds are growing. They're marveling at, at who Jesus is. They're believing in him. In fact, it would seem foolish to reject him at this point. If this, if this isn't the Messiah, then what are we waiting for? If this one who raises the dead is not. And yet here they are now bent on killing Lazarus because they are so blind in their sin that it's no longer enough to kill Jesus, but they've also got to destroy the man who is the living monument to the power of Jesus. Why? Because ultimately they treasured their own lives. 
and their own stuff and their own possessions and power and, and all that they had, they treasured that over everything else, even over the life of a guy who had just been raised from the dead. That's remarkable. But that is, that is the world's greatest stumbling block, really, when it comes to the gospel. The notion that I have to believe in a creator who is greater than me and worship him. Because that takes me taking my eyes off myself, me not being God anymore, me not being master of my own life and being in charge, and, and surrendering to a savior, Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy of worship. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ today, can I plead with you that God came in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and gave his life on the cross so that he might take our sins on himself and bear the wrath of his, the just punishment of sin of his father against sin and bear it in our place, taking our sin, him being no sin, yet becoming sin for us so that he might experience death as the lamb, as the one who sacrificed himself and then raised from the dead declaring victory over death and over sin. I would urge you this morning, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, that's where it begins for you. It is turning from your sin and believing, confessing that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Exactly what John has said is the purpose of his gospel, that you would believe he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, and by believing you would have life in his name. If you are trusting in him, then here's my challenge to you from all the questions we've talked about looking at Mary. Consider Mary's example as a challenge to your own worship this week, considering what you may be holding back, where the areas are that you're still clinging to and not holding open-handed before him. Maybe it's possessions, maybe it's time, maybe it's God calling you to go somewhere. We heard from our brother this morning of, of moving from here and giving up life here and going to a place that seems so far away. Maybe God's working you and, and you're being challenged on giving it up and worshiping Jesus in that way. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, by our lives, we are called to treasure him above all else. All that we have, all the wonderful relationships he's given us, those are all sweet blessings from the hand of God. But we must treasure our Savior as even greater than all, as the one who is all-surpassing, and the one we rest our lives in. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you gave your beloved son in our place. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you. We thank you for being the lamb who stood in our place and took our punishment being the one who loves us with a remarkable love, who provides forgiveness and mercy. Lord Jesus, help us this week to be deliberate in our worship by your Spirit's enabling to, to think about how we, can, how we might sacrifice this week, what you might be calling us to in time, talents, possessions, whatever it might be calling us to, to put ourselves in positions that we might ordinarily think are embarrassing, 
talking to people who we might ordinarily expect to reject us and make us uncomfortable, allowing ourselves to speak forth truths that we might be tempted by the world to in some way shrink back from. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would find us this week by your Spirit's power within us, being bold and deliberate, seeing that it is your sacrifice, the greatest, the costliest, the most humble of sacrifices, God in flesh giving himself in our place. May we give back in terms of our lives, in terms of worship, just the offering of our hands that we might raise the name of Jesus Christ and declare his greatness in all that we say and do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.